0: Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, My name is Tommy. If we've never had the chance to meet, I get the privilege of being the West Dallas campus pastor. I look forward to getting the opportunity to come up here every week when I'm doing announcements and stuff, but I'm excited about today because I just get to be here with you. Like, There's no other reason other than like, and to walk through scripture, two of my favorite things. Um, and today we're gonna be continuing through Exodus, and we're gonna be actually doing part two of a story we started last week. And so last week we started the golden calf incident, as I like to call it. Um, and if you were here, we talked a little bit about the golden calf and how Israel was standing before Mount Sinai, and they created a golden calf because they were kind of bored and worried about what was gonna happen. God was not happy. Moses came down, um, was very angry, made them drink water that was mixed with the golden calf, and some other punishments happened. And that story kind of ends where God is basically, uh, Moses turns and says, okay, I'm going to go back up to God, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, all right? And that's kind of what we saw last week. And a part of that story, we talked about syncretism and idols in there and the ones in our own life. And if you remember, we asked the question in there, we talked about syncretism, and we kind of described syncretism as God plus something equals nothing. Right? God plus something else is not who he is. And we use this analogy of going to Culver's or any sort of restaurant that has like a drinking fountain. And I don't know, Pastor Mark talked about how Culver's root beer was the best thing. I'm a Dr. Pepper guy. I get the analogy, but you know, whatever. So he kind of went through and said, if you go through and you take like the root beer and you go through the rest of the drinks, it's no longer root beer, right? If you add to it, it's something else. God plus something equals nothing. Well, as I was wrestling through that and thinking through, one of the questions that came to my mind then is, well, how do I know then if I have an accurate view of God? How do I know, if I don't want to be syncretistic, don't avoid idols, how do I know then that I have a complete view of God? How do I know if my view is complete? What's interesting is the text today that we're going to look at that comes right after the golden calf incident actually answers that very thing. God is going to answer and say, this is who I am. This is my fullness. This is my goodness is the way he's going to describe it. And so my hope today is that we gain a fuller glimpse of who God is and we see how that impacts ourselves and the world around us. We give a fuller glimpse of who God is and how that shapes the way we see it. So go ahead if you want to open up your Bibles. We're in Exodus 33. We're going to be Exodus 33 and 34 um, walking through there. And like I said, we, where we're picking up in the story, we're going to pick up in Exodus thirty-three seventeen. Moses has just had the whole incident with the golden calf on the ground. Now he's gone, going up the mountain and he's asking God to forgive the people. And so I'm going to summarize the first few verses of 33. Moses and God have this back and forth. They have a conversation. And it ends with God saying, I will forgive the people because of you, Moses. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God says, I will forgive them. And that's where we pick up in verse 17. Exodus 33, 17. So you can go ahead and follow along. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, forgiving the people, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses says, please show me your glory. So Moses asked God to forgive the people, God forgives them, and Moses response to that is saying, okay, I got a piece of who you are in that forgiveness, but show me the rest of you. Moses asked God to reveal his glory. Moses is asking, like, God, let me see your fullness. Let me get a complete view of who you are. Moses wants to see God's goodness. He wants to see the glory of God. And God's response, we're going to see here in a second, is, sure, I will show you with a caveat, all right? Check this out, verses 19. And he, the Lord, says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But... There's the caveat. He said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So God says, Show me your glory. And he says, Yes. My goodness, I'll pass before you, but you cannot see my face. He also mentions something really interesting. Did you catch it? He says, I will pass before you and proclaim my name. That seems interesting. We already know his name, right? It's Yahweh. So why is it such a big deal here for him to say, I'm going to proclaim my name? Uh, For us today, um, a name is basically just that. It's just what we call somebody, right? It's a moniker, whether it's Alex or Mark or Lawrence or Liz or whatever it is, it's just what we call people, right? But back in this day, what you call somebody or their name actually had more than just what you called them. It actually showed a bit of your character or your destiny. And so a person in this day, take example, um, Abram in the Old Testament. Abram's name in Hebrew means father. In Genesis 17, God promises Abram that he will be a father of many so God changes his name from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of many. His name actually shows more of his character, more of his destiny. And so when God here says, I will proclaim my name, what he's actually saying is, I'm going to show you my fullness. I may not be able to see it, but I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you what is who, what I'm like. This is no small detail. In fact, the two verses here of God answering the question, Who am I? and proclaiming his name, are two of the biggest verses in the Old Testament. It's Exodus thirty-four, six, and seven. It's a major mile marker in the entire Bible, let alone Exodus. These two verses are the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. Right? This is the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. These verses are a big deal. In fact, if you go into a Jewish home today, like in in different places, they have this thing called a mezuzah up on the the wall, and inside of that is wrapped up a little piece of Scripture. It's usually Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Do you catch that these two verses and how God answers it are kind of a big deal? And they answer the question, who is God? God is going to answer the question, who am I? And this is how he answers that question. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will he by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is who God says He is. This is who God is. If God had Twitter, this would be His bio. This is who He is. And I think as we ask the question, how do we have an accurate view of God, I think one of the things about this passage is, as we go through, what we're going to do is we're going to go through phrase by phrase and break it down. There's six phrases in here that we're going to break down. Because I think as we unpack what that means in that phrase, we gain a fuller view of who God is. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through these six phrases. So the first phrase starts with, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord. Um, whenever you see L O R D in capital letters in our English version of the Bible, remember it's translated from Hebrew. Whenever we see that, it's actually in Hebrew God's name, Yahweh. So when God introduces himself, he starts with his personal name. I am Yahweh, Yahweh. And also, anytime anything is repeated in Scripture, it's flashing red lights by the author like, do not miss this. This is a big deal. And why? I think there's two reasons why this is a big deal. For God to start with his personal name, Yahweh. The first is this. um, How you introduce yourself is kind of important. How you introduce yourself is going to establish the relationship, right? When I go to the doctor's office and I walk in and they say, Hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. What are they doing? They're establishing doctor-patient relationship, Right? You go to a store. Hi, I'm the manager. What are they doing? Manager, clients, right? You're establishing the relationship in how you introduce yourself. How does God introduce himself here? My name is Yahweh. He could very easily say, I'm the dude. I'm God. I'm him. And he'd be right to do that. But he doesn't. He says, I'm Yahweh. He starts with his personal name. God is relational. Think of it this way. Imagine if the president came in, and instead of saying, hey, I'm President Biden, he says, I'm Joe. Feel weird, right? But that's what God's doing here on a much greater scale. He's saying he's relational. And his name, when you translate it like in the original language, means who I am, I will always be meaning the attributes of what we're going to read, the things we're going to get into in a second. He says, that's who I was for your ancestors, Israel. That's who I am right now as he's reading, as he's saying this in Exodus, and that's who he has in the future, which is us standing here right now. Who I am, I will always be. God is relational. He has a personal name. Second phrase that we see here, merciful and gracious. Gracious merciful and gracious in the original language these two words actually rhymed they rhyme together and actually when you study them in scripture you'll see these two words are almost always together they're intrinsically tied and so what is it saying well merciful in the original language actually is the word woomy like a woman's womb and it's a word that has feeling It has a deep emotional piece to it. It's got great emotion weight to it. And it means this. It invites us to think of the tender feelings a mother has for their helpless child. It invites us to think of the tender feelings that a mother has for their helpless child. My wife and I, we have um, four kids, three biological and one foster child. Um, I've had the pleasure of being in the room when my wife has given birth. And I say that exactly how I say it. She did all the work. I was just there. But I remember the first time she gave birth to our our, our kids, her holding them for the first time, pulling them tightly in. The emotion that she felt in that moment and how she loved that kid so much and just wanted to wrap her arms around him. That's what this word is getting at. That's how God views us, that's how God views you. He wants to wrap his arms around you in the tender emotions that he has. Have you ever thought about this? God has emotions for you? That's what this word is bringing out. It's that idea. And this mercy, these tender, this tender emotion piece leads to gracious, or I'll put it this way, helping someone in need when they cannot help themselves. Helping someone in need when they cannot help It's this idea of because God has these emotions towards us, in the same way a mother will wrap their arms around their children, he has those emotions, but he's not just going to stay there and say, I like you, he's going to do something about it. He's going to step in and do something. Do you see how these two words are intrinsically tied together? He's both merciful and gracious. He is emotional in a good way for us, and he's going to do something about that. Next phrase. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Um, In the original language, uh, the phrase here actually is, he is long of nostril. Seriously. How do we go from long of nostril to slow to anger? (laughs) How do we get there? Um, This is actually, that's an idiomatic phrase or a phrase that they would use all the time. So when they heard it, they knew instantly they were saying slow to anger. But think of this for a second. Think of the last time you were angry. I mean like really angry. Like someone just smashed your car in in a hit and run, angry. How do you calm yourself down from keeping to explode? What do you do? You suck in air, you tighten up, and you flare your nostrils, right? God is saying, my nose is so big, it takes a lot to get me angry. Seriously, I'm not joking. (laughs) My nose is so big, metaphorically, <laughs> it is so large that it takes a lot to get me angry. He's slow to anger. Other, other translations actually use the word like patient or long-suffering. It's this idea of it takes a lot to get him angry. Now, he does get angry. We're going to talk about that later. But the emphasis on this part is the slow part. God does not have an itchy trigger finger. Like, we can be people who have like emotional dams ready to break. That's not what God is. He's slow to anger, patient, long suffering. He's slow to anger. So, He's relational. He has feelings for us and he's going to do something about it and he's slow to anger and it leads us to our next phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The focal part of this phrase is actually that, the word steadfast love. Um, in, in Hebrew, when you translate this to English, different translations, you have different versions of the Bible, they don't all agree on how to translate this. You'll see things like steadfast love like we have here, but you'll also see loving kindness, loyal love, Unfailing love. And so you can kind of get, there's some different things. They're trying to get at the concept of what's going on. And back in the day, like, there wasn't just, like, there was multiple versions of love in Hebrew, right? The love you have for a brother, the love you have for a spouse, the love you have for an object. They were different types of love. And the word here in Hebrew is chesed. You got to get that phlegm in there, you know? Chesed. Now, yeah, there it is. Um, chesed. It's actually, it's, it's actually the deepest form of love in Hebrew. It's the deepest form of love, and it combines these three different pieces together to kind of explain it. The first one, it combines affection, commitment, and action. Affection, commitment, and action. Affection, we kind of already talked about this. It's the warm affection that you have for a person, right? It's a warm affection. It's in there. Um, And then there's the, based on that affection, there's a commitment or a contractual aspect to it. We've seen how God over and over again, we've made covenants with his people. We've talked about that throughout Exodus. There's a contractual element to it. And based on the warm affections of the commitment, there's action that follows, right? There's concrete acts that accompany those things. And if you take away one part of that, it's no longer chesed. It's no longer steadfast love. And so what God is saying here is he is full. Remember, it says abounding in steadfast love. It's saying he is full of the greatest love that we can ever imagine. He is great, and that faithfulness at the end part means it just goes on and on and on and on. It does not change. And it actually begs the question, so how far does it go? If it goes on and on and on, how far does it go? Look at the fifth phrase. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That word thousands there, if you actually dive into it, it's really talking about keeping love for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. How big is his love? Think about how big thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of generations is. That's what he's getting at. And how big is his love? That he, because of that love, will forgive all iniquity, transgression, and sin. That phrase, iniquity, transgression, and sin, what it's getting at is this idea of from every accidental small little thing you can think of to the most vile, heinous, evil act, God says, my love is so big that I'll forgive all of that. How much love do you have to have for something or someone that you will forgive anything? That's how much love God has. His love He's bounding and steadfast love, keeping that love for thousands of generations, forgiving all iniquity, transgression, and sin. From the smallest accident to the most vile thing you can think of, he offers forgiveness. There's nothing you can't do that he won't forgive. He offers forgiveness to everything. All you have to do is accept it. We just saw that in, in, this, in the golden calf, right? These are what's made a golden calf. Moses goes up and says, um, forgive them. And he goes, I offer it and they take it, I give it. He offers forgiveness. He's relational. He's gracious and merciful. He's abounding in love and he forgives all sins. And it leads to the last phrase. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This closing element can be a little difficult, right? Um, It can be, there's some weird things in there. We're gonna unpack it, Um, but I'm gonna say this. Without this part, we cannot gain a full grasp of who God is. It's all of this. God is relational, merciful, loving, and at the same time, by no means clears the guilty. Both can be true at the same time. Scripture has no problem with that. God is the only truly fair person in the universe. And we reap what we sow. Remember I said earlier how God is slow to anger? This is the part where I'm going to talk about God does get angry sometimes. He does. In fact, when he talked about the golden calf incident and said his anger burned, it actually says his nostrils raged. There's a picture for you. Against Israel. And so how can God be loving and angry? Love and anger don't seem like things that should mix together. They seem at odds, right? How can love love and judgment coexist? Well, I truly believe the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. If you love something, you will get angry for it. I mentioned earlier that my wife and I we have four kids. Um, imagine, if you will. Well, you don't need to imagine. I do love my kids. Let me start there. Okay, I love my kids. Let me let me back up and try this again. I love my children. Period. All right. <laughs> um, I love my kids. Imagine someone comes along and says, "Hey, I want to hurt your kids. Can I do that?" How should I respond? Imagine if I just said, sure, I love you, I love them, do whatever you want, I don't care. Would you say that's love? No. I hope you would call child services on me. Amen. Right? What should I do? Absolutely not. How dare you? I love these, these are my children and I want to stand in the way. I should get angry against that. And in fact, I should should love that person so much that my anger should burn against them wanting to. And my love for them is actually me getting angry. The opposite of love is not anger, it's apathy. And God is not apathetic. He's not. In fact, when you look at this, God views us and sin this way. He loves us, his children, so much. And sin comes along and says, I want to do unthinkable harm to your children. And what does God say? Absolutely not. He steps into this. This is why when we point our head to the cross, we say this is the greatest form of love, period. Because in that moment, God says, sin, you no longer have a hold on them. Sin, you no longer have any sort of foothold against them. And I'm going to pay the price because I love them enough that I want them to be free from the bondage you put them in. That is the kind of love God has. He by no means clears the guilty. He hates sin. He hates it. Why? Because he's seen what it does to his creation. And he loves us. He loves you so much that he does not want you to have that. And so he by no means clears the guilty. He offers forgiveness. And all we have to do is accept it. And then there's the last part in there It says, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's a tongue twister. What's going on there? It sounds kind of like a generational curse, right? Like, I'm going to punish you because of what your father did. The kids and the kids and the kids are going to pay for it. But that's actually not what's going on here. Um, What God's talking about here is not a generational curse, What he's talking about is the natural consequences of sin. He's talking about the natural consequences of sin. Look, there are decisions in our lives that are going to have ripple effects. My grandparents made decisions that have affected me, they affected my parents. I'm going to make decisions that are going to affect my kids and those. And so there's generational ripple effects, right? And God's going to say that. My dad grew up without a dad. Um, His dad, my dad, my grandfather, I never met. He died when my my dad was about eight years old. Um, And he passed away from complications. He had alcoholism, and then he came sober, but then died from cancer years later. Those decisions in my grandfather's life had effects on my dad. My dad grew up without a dad. And so when my dad, my mom, had me, that had residual effects on me as well, positively and negatively and was that was that God looking at my grandfather and go I'm going to punish Tommy because of my grandfather no it's saying there's decisions that went along the way look there are certain things in our life that are going to carry consequences alcoholism adultery <laughs> other forms of sin that are going to have natural consequences that come out of them and God's not saying here that that is my punishment what God is saying he visits the iniquities what is he saying i know that this is true that there is generational ripple effects and I'm going to be with you through it anyways. He visits the iniquity. He's going to be with you. Think about that. Whatever you're going through, God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm here. There's this beautiful piece of my mercy and my grace and all that God is is with us no matter what we're going through. And that's what he says he is. God is with you no matter what. This is who our God is. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is our God. And this is how he answers it who I am. Let me ask you how does this God line up with a picture of God you had growing up? How does this God? And the different qualities and attributes we just talked about them line up with how you grew up viewing God. A.W. Tozer has a famous quote that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the greatest thing about us. How we view God will impact how we view everything. Period. And if we aren't careful, I think we can hear about who God is. We can hear passages like today and we can almost view it like supermarket God. I like his love and forgiveness. I'll go down that aisle. I'll g- give me all of that. Put it in my basket. We go around the corner and we're like, anger, judgment? Eh, I'll wait for it. It's for a two-for-one on sale. Right? But yet when you look at the basket, if we don't take the fullness of who he is, we do not have a complete picture of who he is. See, I think we can have incredible unintended consequences. We can add attributes or subtract from who he is, and now we can have an incomplete, fake version of the real thing. And that can lead to some pretty devastating unintentional consequences. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love to cook. It's one of the things I enjoy doing a lot. In fact, usually when I come home from work, I usually walk into the kitchen and my wife has already texted me, here's what we're having for dinner. Um, Not because she's a bad cook do I like to cook, she's better than I am, it's a de-stressor, all right? I enjoy it, I come home. Um, And I remember one time I came home from work and I opened the freezer and I noticed that we had one of those Costco gotcha things. You know what I'm talking about? You walk through Costco, and it's the samples, and you're like, oh, I wasn't planning on buying chicken pineapple meatballs today, but I guess I'm bringing those home. You know what I'm talking about? And so I pulled those chicken pineapple meatballs out of the freezer and decided I'm going to make ch- chicken and pineapple meatballs with su- oh, sweet and sour sauce over rice. It's a staple in our household we're going to do this. So I start getting the things together. I throw the meatballs in the air fryer. I end up um, putting the rice on the stove. And then I texted my wife. This is how we communicate. We're in the same home, by the way, sometimes. I texted my wife and go, hey, that sweet and sour sauce recipe, that homemade one we found online, I can't find it. Do you have it? She sent me a picture for it instantly. It's like, awesome. So I start going through. I add all the ingredients. I make it to what the recipe says. And about 20 minutes later, I've got dinner. Dinner's ready, I put um, all the stuff, I make the plates, they're all ready to go. We're sitting on the table and I call my whole family, it's time for dinner. So little thing about us when we eat, Um, my kids are very picky eaters. So what I'm about to say is very normal in our house. So my oldest sits down, takes a bite and goes, dad, I don't want to eat this. I didn't think anything of it because this is normal. That's a normal thing I hear in my house. All right, and I'm like, like, no, just eat it, it's fine. Go, go, go. My next child takes a bite and goes, "Ugh, I don't want any of this, and shoves the plate to the middle of the table. Again, normal things we hear in our house, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm starting to get a little offended. I'm like, okay guys, I'm pulling my dad card out, you need to eat this, I made this, all this stuff, you need to eat it. My three-year-old, then takes a bite and asks the question, Dad, can I have some milk? Because he wants to wash the taste of what's in his mouth out. At this point, I'm getting a little upset. All right, I have made you dinner. I have taken time. I'm ready to go. Like, what do you mean that you're not going to eat this? You're going to eat this. That's when my wife sat down, took a bite, and I watched the wheels turn in her head. She's sitting here chewing and she's trying to, with all the grace and love in her, ask the question, what went wrong? And I remember her looking at me going like, she's like, yeah, I don't know about this. And I'm like, I'm like there's no way. I followed the recipe, whatever, and I take a bite, and I go, yeah, we're not eating this. <laughs> something went wrong. Now, I was getting angry at this point, too, all right? Something went wrong in the recipe. I could not figure it out for me. We ended up getting something else for the kids to eat. I wasn't gonna put them through that torture. And so they finished eating, and my wife and I afterwards are cleaning up the dishes talking about what happened. And we're going through everything, and I like went through the recipe, like the meatballs had not expired yet, the rice had not expired yet. I pulled up the recipe for sweet and sour, and I'm like, man, I followed everything. She goes, well, did you put everything in there? I'm like, yes. I put the vinegar, I put the cornstarch, I put the soy sauce, I put the um, ketchup in there. All of it's ready to go. And she looked and pointed and goes, did you add the sugar? The part that makes the sweet and sour sweet. <laughs> I made sour sauce. <laughs> I was one ingredient off, and it had major unintended consequences for everybody else. Look, I think if we're not careful, we can be one ingredient off or leave things out that we don't like about God, and we can completely miss Him entirely. God plus anything misses the mark on who he is. And also, God minus who he says he is, we take away pieces we don't like, also misses the mark. We can do things like God is love and we love that piece and we love all about it, but that justice, no, I don't want that. Honestly, his grace and mercy can't exist without justice. Justice. Or we can do the opposite. God is just out here for rules and regulations, and he's just after all these things about me, and we can miss his forgiveness and his love, and it can completely miss this. Um, In history, Thomas Jefferson actually went through all of the Bible and cut out everything he didn't like. You can find online the Jefferson Bible. Completely serious. I'm not making that up. Look, we may not be on that grand of a scale where we walk through scripture and cut out the things we don't like, but how can we sometimes unintentionally miss the reality of the fullness of God when he clearly tells us who he is? This is our God. We can miss one part of who he is and have incredible unintended consequences, both intentionally and unintentionally. Look, I can say that because I've had that happen. I've been there. These two verses changed my life, Um, so much so that I scarred my body. This is a tattoo is what I'm talking about, okay? These two verses years ago when I walked through it forced me to ask the question, do I have an accurate view of who God is? You see, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up following Jesus. My parents are godly people who love Christ and they taught me all the right things. I was involved with church, did everything right. Yet somewhere along the way, I was believing the lie that God is angry. I missed the slow to part. And what that did for me is I started to view the world around me and I started to go like, no, if God's always angry with me, he's just waiting for me to mess up. Therefore, I'm never good enough. Every time I messed up, I was asking the question, did I just lose my salvation? I started asking, am I good enough? Am I doing the right things? And I started treating other people harshly because of that. And honestly, I didn't even want to spend time with Jesus in that moment. Who wants to be with an angry God who's angry all the time? You see, my misview of Jesus had incredible unintended consequences. But I actually was years ago... I read a book called God Has a Name that walks through every single piece that I talked about in greater detail, and it forced me to ask the question, is this how I view God? And when I started to see the fuller picture of who he is, that he is gracious and merciful and relational and slow to anger, that changed me. I realized that I was living out a lie that I didn't even know I was believing until that moment. And through the work of the Spirit and some very key men in my life, we started to unwind that lies that I was believing and reinsert them with the truth. And so now I have a fuller view of God, of who he is. I can live in light of who he is. And so this is why you will hear me over and over and over again and why I've asked it so many times today. How do you view God? God, how do you view him? Because it's going to impact yourself and the world around you. How you view God is the greatest thing about you. So how do we grow in an accurate view of who God is? How do we continue to grow on that? Well, I've got three challenges for you. All right, three challenges. The first is this. Memorize these two verses. This is who God says he is. This is who he is. I, I went back and I've memorized these, and what it's done for me is in times when I'm struggling with these different lies I believe, where I'm going through things, because I've memorized them, they honestly, the spirit will use them and will start putting them in my head at different times. I start to get frustrated, and I'm reminding myself, God is slow to anger. Tommy, be slow to anger. Be who God is in you. When I'm interacting with people, how can I be gracious and merciful but still at the same time talk about how sin still has devastating effects and how God hates it. And all that is because, like, honestly, part of it is me memorizing Scripture. Second challenge. Write out how you view God growing up and compare that to these verses. Write it out. Spend 10, 15 minutes, maybe a half hour. Write out, growing up, how did I view God and compare them? What's the same? What's different? What's different? I found for me when I did that, when I walked through those two verses and how it changed me is when I walked through the slow to anger, I had to stop and go, is who God says he is true or am I going to hold on to my lie of who he is? And I had to let God change me. And what I realized is those are the areas I needed to grow in. I needed to learn more. And it forced me to lean in and study more of his word and to understand who he is deeper. Write that out. And the third thing, man, live out the character of God. The Spirit, God, lives in every single person who is, who is a believer in Christ. This is who is in us. These are the attributes of him. We get to live out that. That's why we say love God, love people. We are literally God's people on display for the world to see, to show him. In fact, Moses, when he came down off the mountain after this experience, his face glowed. And the whole world goes, I want to know what he just went through. We get an opportunity to live out the character of God. And not in a way of like, I'm earning God's grace or earning his salvation. He's already given that to us. But because he's doing it, I get to express the goodness of who he is to the world around me. And what's beautiful is I've learned to live out these characters. And as I'm still growing in that, as I'm, I'm learning to study these, what I found is if you take who God says he is here and trace it through the rest of Scripture, this lines up. And the fullness of this, God in human form, the incarnation, what we're gonna look at for Christmas, Jesus, this is who Jesus is. He is relational, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so if you're here trying to figure out who is Jesus, who is this person, why are they all here studying? I'm gonna be as clear as I can. This is his character. This is who he is. Let me encourage you. In times of struggle, in times of hardship, lean back on who God is. He is Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love to thousands. Um, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. This is our God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't leave it up to chance with us figuring out who you are, but you give us your word, and even you go as far as saying, this is who I am. And so God, I thank you, you are who you are, that you never change, that you are the same, that you love us and you desire so much for us to live in relationship with you that you would span the universe, God, to come, Jesus, to be fully God, fully man, to pay the price we deserve because you do not leave the guilty unpunished so that we can live in forgiveness always. God, help us to continue to show who you are to the world around us. God, don't let these do just words, but let them Let them be an act of who we are so we can show the world that we love you so we can become a better disciple, a better follower of who you are. God, we love you and praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.